I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 18 in just a moment of 1 Samuel. But I want to remind you or tell you, as the case may be, about a movie that, to my surprise, came out over 30 years ago. It was called Amadeus, Amadeus. And it's about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and about how, as he is, one of the greatest composers of music. And it was about his life, but also about the envy of a man by the name of Antonio Salieri. Antonio Salieri was a court musician to the king of Austria in Vienna. And he had heard of Mozart and wanted to, to know this wonderful composer. But when he met Mozart, he was not impressed by his life, by Mozart's life. He found him to be immature, vulgar, obscene, and lewd. And the movie does depict that this was indeed the case. And Antonio Salieri just thought this was such a waste for this, this man who was able to compose such beautiful music. He, he was actually quite envious of Mozart. Salieri, you see, had dedicated himself to serving God, promising to write music that would glorify the Heavenly Father. But here was this immature, lewd, vulgar man who had this tremendous gift and didn't seem concerned about glorifying God with his life, much less his, his music. And so Salieri is so envious of Mozart that he devises this plot really to, to ruin Mozart. And the movie depicts all of this going on. And in the climactic monologue, Salieri curses God for denying him the kind of talent which he granted to Mozart. And to me, this movie really is a brilliant illustra- illustration of how envy can not only alienate a person from others, but alienate a person from God. And I think there's some overtones from that movie that we'll see in our text in 1 Samuel 18 and following. But envy, let's discuss this deadly sin of of envy. What is the definition of envy? Here's one writer's definition. Envy is grief or displeasure at the good of another. The good consisting of wealth or fame or any other possession which men prize. So displeasure at the good of another. It includes jealousy, but envy, I believe, goes a step further. In that not only do you want what that person has, but you want it for yourself. And you wish that other person didn't have it at all. It's not simply the desire to have the same kind of thing that the other person has. Envy is the desire to have what another person actually has. The envious person wants to strip the other of something in order to possess it completely and solely. And I think Salieri and Mozart give an example of this. Many envious people believe that someone's fortune is their misfortune. His blessing, their curse. His success, their failure. 
Interestingly, the word envy, our word, comes from two Latin terms. In, which means against, and video, to look upon. Putting that together, it would mean to look against, to eye with evil intent, is the meaning of this, of this sin. I'll invite you to join with me in a study of, of Saul and David to see, to see envy demonstrated. I want to read from 1 Samuel chapter 18 in the first nine verses. Notice with me. 1 Samuel 18, beginning verse 1. It was so when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that is Goliath, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And notice Saul's response. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed but thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Now zoom in on verse 9. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And that's classic envy. To view with evil intent. Saul eyed David. Or you may have, uh, he kept a jealous eye on, on David. He eyed David. He eyed him with evil intent. And this is envy at its greatest. In the next few chapters, it, it speaks to how Saul acted upon his envy. He views David as a threat. And even the people are recognizing that David has been a successful man of war, even exceeding what Saul has done. And he's very jealous and envious of David. To the extent where in the next few chapters we'll see that Saul attempts to take David's life. In fact, notice how he does so. First of all, by throwing a spear at him. Here's the king of Israel out of envy trying to kill David with his own spear. Look with me, verse 10 of 1 Samuel 18. It happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So, so David played music with his hand as, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And you may remember that Saul had, um, had asked David, who played the harp, a wonderful musician, to, to play for him so as to settle his mind, ease his mind. 
But on this occasion, David is doing it again. But there's Saul, envious Saul with that spear in his hand. Verse 11, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall with it. But David escaped his presence twice. And here is the first of many attempts that Saul will make out of envy to kill David. The next attempt, as he, as he views David again as a threat to his kingship, uh, he tries to trick David into fighting the Philistines. And watch how this happens. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. He's giving him his daughter to, to marry. And on the surface, on the outside looking in, that would appear that, well, Saul must think very highly of David, that he's giving his own daughter to marry him. But if you read on, you see his real motive. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. He's trying to bring him in close to, to even show favoritism or in the pretense of it. Marry my daughter, be my commanding general, but he's hoping that the Philistines will kill him in battle. But isn't it terrible that Saul would use his own daughter as a pawn in his plot to destroy David? He promises Merib to, to David. David doesn't feel worthy to be the king's son-in-law and then in verse 19, we find that Merib is given to someone else. But Saul has another daughter, Michael. Notice verse 20. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And here he is again using another daughter. Not that he's so concerned that Michael loves David and would want to be his, his wife. But he's trying to use, again, his own daughter to try to destroy David. So David, you'll be my son-in-law. He's, he's using his own daughters to manipulate his, the end that he has in mind. David's end. And it reminds us that, that envy can cause people to use other people in order to try to destroy someone else. He even includes his servants here. Saul tells his servants, go and tell David that the king delights in you. Verse 22 and following. And therefore you should become the king's son-in-law. So he, he uses his servants to try to get David to marry Michael. But David still doesn't feel worthy to be the king's son-in-law. And so he instructs his servants to tell David that there would be a dowry that would be expected. That he must kill a hundred Philistines. And perhaps David now sees, well, I could, I could do something for the king that would make me feel better about taking one of his daughters as, as my wife. And so he went out and killed not 100, but 200 Philistines. And so Saul gives Michael 
to be David's wife. Look with me, verse 28 of chapter 18. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And he is still consumed by wanting to destroy David. By the way, and we'll see this borne out, there's nothing about David that we see that would be a real threat to Saul. Had Saul loved David like even his own daughter Michael did, David would have fought for him and, and would continue to be as loyal to, he, to Saul as he even evidences at this point. But again, Saul is so jealous and envious of David, sees him as a threat, so continues to try to destroy him. He tried to kill him with his own spear. He tried to trick David into fighting the Philistines and being killed in battle. But then, chapter 19, his efforts become even more direct. He tells his servants, he commands his servants to go and kill David. Verse 1, chapter 19. So Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, Delighted much in David. If you read on in chapter 19, you'll see how Jonathan tries to to plead with his father. What has David done? He's loyal to you. He has done nothing worthy of death. And so Saul, at least temporarily, heeds the voice of Jonathan and made this promise. He swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. He's not going to keep that promise. Because we read on in the next paragraph in chapter 19 that he makes yet another attempt to kill David again with his own spear. And so he's consumed yet again out of envy to destroy David. Verse 11 of chapter 19 tells about how he sent his messengers once again to kill David. But Michael loves David. And so Michael warns David and even lets him out a window in a basket so that he might escape. And Saul learns of this and and rebukes his daughter for siding with David. But Saul's not through. He comes to kill David at Samuel's house, Samuel the prophet. Perhaps David has, has ran there for refuge. And so he finds out where David is, and so he comes after him himself. But it's God that protects David. The messengers that Saul sends initially, they are overcome by the Spirit of God. They begin to prophesy. He sends another group. The same thing happens. A third group. The same thing happens. And so Saul, apparently he says, well, I'll do it myself. And so he goes, but yet he also uh, prophesies. And so God essentially protects David on this occasion. Chapter 20. And we'll summarize chapter 20. He even commands, Saul commands his son Jonathan to bring David to him so that David can be killed. And by now he knows uh, David and Jonathan have become very, very close But Saul instructs his own son, Jonathan, 
to bring David to him so that he can kill him. David and Jonathan have a discussion. In fact, they make a covenant. Jonathan is to find out Saul's intentions. And so they devise this plan where David's going to be absent from from the banquet, from, from eating at the king's table. And by Saul's reaction, it is David is going to know, and Jonathan's going to know, does Saul intend to kill David or not? And the first time David is absent, Saul says, well, he must be unclean, ceremonial, ceremonially unclean for some reason, so he hasn't come. But the second day, he asks, where is David? And according to Jonathan and David's plan, he is told that David has gone to offer a sacrifice with his family back in Bethlehem. And Saul is, is angered. And notice with me verse 28 of chapter 20. So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go for our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. And please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. And he said to him, you are a son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do, do, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse, David, lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul, notice, cast a spear at him. At whom? At Jonathan, his son, to kill him. By which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. We, we see this man, King Saul, consumed with envy. That not only is he continually thinking about and plotting about how he can get David and destroy David, but he's destroying everybody else around him. He's using his own daughters and his servants to try to get to David. He even throws a spear at his own son out of envious anger. And we could read on in the next few chapters and see where David flees and Saul chases. And if someone is found to be hiding David, Saul has them killed. And David even has opportunities to kill Saul. One time David is in the recesses of a cave and Saul comes in. And, and even David's own men are telling him, here's your opportunity. You can put an end to all of this. You can go and kill the king, but David, out of respect for the Lord's anointed, refuses to do so. And more than one occasion, David could have taken Saul's life and pointed out to Saul, I'm not against you. I'm not going to, to kill you. Why are you after me? Saul repents on occasion, but then goes after David again. Again, it's, it's a classic study of the evils of envy. But I want to stop there in, in a story that could go on to identify envy's destructive nature. Envy destroys others. 
with forethought and malice. Those who are envious attack reputations. They make false accusations. They try every way that they can to destroy other people. Envy inflamed Saul to where he would hurl a javelin at David and even at his own son. Envy enraged Joseph's brothers to the point where they would cast their own flesh and blood into the pit and then sell him as a slave. Envy sought the annihilation of the whole Jewish race because the prime minister, Haman of Persia, was offended by one Jew named Mordecai. This story that I'm going to tell you is a fanciful legend, but it has a special lesson. Two men walked the road with a stranger. One was greedy and one was envious. And when they parted company with this stranger, the stranger promised to to bestow any wish they might covet. There was, however, the stipulation that the man who did not wish would receive a double portion of what the other man wished. So here's this greedy man and this envious man. The greedy desired the double portion, therefore he would not wish. He was waiting on the envious person to wish. The envious person couldn't stand the thought of this greedy person having twice as much as he did, so he didn't want to make the wish. And at length... The greedy man grew impatient, grabbed the other by the collar, demanded under the threat of death that he make a wish. And so the envious man made a wish. He wished that he was blind in one eye, which would mean the greedy man would be struck blind in both. It's a powerful parable of the intent to harm out of envy which is characteristic of the envious person. But it also illustrates this, that envy not only destroys others, it destroys self. He died in a a jealous rage, we might hear on the news. A man can become so furious in his envy that he commits foolish things which end up hurting himself. I read about... The citizens of a Greek city, Thasos, who erected a memorial to one of their tremendous athletes, Theogenes, built this this memorial, this monument to him. But there was another envious rival that couldn't stand the thought of this, this athlete being memorialized in such a way. And so every night he'd go and try to chip away at that statue, trying to cause it to fall. And so night after night, he'd go away and try to destroy this this monument until finally he was successful and he began to to lift the, the statue from its pedestal only for it to fall on himself and it killed him. Envy destroys self. Job 5 verse 2, wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one. Perhaps uh, one of the best known passages of scripture about envy is Proverbs 14 verse 30. A heart at peace 
gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Or envy is the rottenness of the bones. Envy will destroy others. It'll destroy us. But it's envy that needs to be destroyed. So how do we destroy envy? Let me suggest a few things. Number one, confess it to God. Admit our struggle with it. Acknowledge it. And it means looking at ourselves honestly. And we need to confess it as, as children of God. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to acknowledge that, yes, I'm guilty. Number two, we need to watch our comparisons. It's when we get into this habit of comparing that we become envious And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. He says it's not wise to compare yourself with others. So we need to watch our comparisons. Number three, we need to count our blessings. Really, envy reflects a lack of gratitude. For God's blessings in our own lives. We're so consumed by the success or the possessions of others. And wish we had them to the point where we we don't stop and realize how blessed we are. So in everything we need to give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. We need to develop a thankful heart. And it will help us defeat envy. Count your blessings But count your mercies. Count your mercies. You see, the envious are always comparing themselves with their more fortunate neighbors. About how other people have it better than they. What what we need to do is remember, there are a lot of people that are less fortunate, less blessed, if you will, than we. Go to the hospital. Walk around. Visit patients and you realize how healthy you are. Go see someone like Sue Cade in the nursing home. Take a look at the, at the residents there and you realize just how blessed you are. And so many other examples we, can get, we could give, but count your mercies. If you're going to compare, compare with those who, who aren't as fortunate who don't have what what we have. And it will help us to be thankful. James 1.27, we need to practice that pure and undefiled religion, which is to visit, and the idea is to go to see to the needs of orphans and widows in their trouble. Realize how how difficult a time they have, and it will help us to realize just how blessed we are. But also to destroy envy, we need to learn to love. We need to learn to love others like God loves us. And you remember the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity 
but rejoices in the truth. Folks, if we learn to love more, it'll destroy envy in our hearts. And finally, we need to learn to rejoice with others. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Take the last part of that verse first. Weep with those who weep. Feel along with those who are hurting. Perhaps over the loss of a loved one. Feel with them. Pray for them. Think about how it must feel. And perhaps we can even think from our own experience. Weep with those who weep. And that may make us feel uncomfortable in, in doing so. Not knowing what to say. Not knowing exactly what to do. So it can make us feel uncomfortable. But we need to relate to and show compassion to those who are hurting. But the first part says... Rejoice with those who rejoice. If we have envy in our hearts, that's the more difficult to do, isn't it? It's going to be more difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice if we're envious of others. What change would it make in the hearts of the envious if we could say, if we could quote this poem from our hearts? I love a thing that's fine, even when it's not mine. And though it never mine can be, yet it delights and gladdens me. If we can look at the successes, uh, the possessions, the blessings that others have, and get to the point where we can rejoice with them, then envy is not going to be a problem. Envy is an ugly thing, isn't it? It's a deadly sin. But with God's help, it can be overcome. One last point about envy. Pilate tried to, to think of every way that he could to release Jesus. You remember that he even offered to release unto them, as his custom was, either Jesus... Or Barabbas, a notable prisoner, a rebellious person. The worst of the worst, if you will. One who had committed a murderer. One who had committed capital crimes. But he offered this choice. Do you want me to release to you Jesus? Or this terrible criminal named Barabbas? For he knew, the scripture says, that for envy... They had delivered him up. They wanted Jesus destroyed. So they chose, release to us Barabbas. What then shall I do with Jesus? Crucifying was the cry. And so Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. For our sins, including the sin of envy. That was one of the primary sins that put him on the cross to begin with. But Jesus died so even that sin can be forgiven. If we'll just acknowledge it as Christians confess it and ask God to forgive us. 
but also how Jesus would go to the cross and die for those terrible sins, even like envy, so that when we turn from our sin in repentance and confess His name, we can be baptized into Christ so that all those sins, even that sin of envy, can be washed away. If tonight you need to respond to obey the gospel of Jesus, or if you desire the prayers of the church, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?